Welcome to the Normal to Nomad podcast, where we share stories, thoughts, ideas, and conversations on our journey to find balance with nature in a technologically advanced world. My name is Baron, And I'm Elsa. We live together in a 13-foot scamp trailer with our dog camp in the American wilderness. Greetings and welcome back. Today we have our friend Lindsay visiting us from... Alaska and she has been on the road for how long now? Almost two years. Living out of her van solo which is incredible and we're gonna dig into what that's like as a solo female traveler. She's got a lot of cool things going on working on a festival that she's throwing next year. 20 what year? Was 2020. <laughs> 2020. Um, so that'll be very cool and lots of other things. So, should we dive into it? So, to start out, just tell us kind of a little bit about yourself and why you're living out of a van and, like, how you did that. And... Okay. Um, my name is Lindsay. I was born and raised in Alaska, specifically Palmer. It's a small town located about 50 miles northeast of Anchorage. Um... I started living in a van almost two years ago. Before I dove into that, I researched it for around two and a half years. Um, and what really got me into looking into vans was I have a face and body painting company. And I was operating that out of a Honda CRV, which is kind of just like a small hatchback. And I needed to upgrade because I could not sleep in the vehicle and have all my festival stuff in there at the same time. So I was researching vans, what was the best option for that, what had the most cubic square footage, etc. And through that process, I discovered that people live in them. And I thought that was the coolest thing ever, and it really resonated with me. And so I spent every waking moment that I wasn't working or doing other menial tasks, I spent researching that and figuring out which van exactly that I wanted, um, what my lifestyle would be like. Originally, it was just going to be in the summers in Alaska, but I was really inspired in the fall time of 2017 and decided to just build it out and head out from there. So I purchased the van um, after one of the big festivals that I did in August 2017, Salmon Fest. And it was owned by a small company who did tours around the state. Um, turns out he was my neighbor, which was kind of crazy. And I purchased it, was so extremely happy and excited, super ugly crying. <laughs> uh, he thought it was so weird that this young girl was crying over <laughs> just a passenger van. He's like, uh, okay, have fun with that. <laughs> but to me, it was more than that, and it was the beginning of the rest of my life and my dreams coming true, and that finally coming into fruition. Um, so I... In August of 2017, I went and lived on a sailboat in uh, San Diego. 
was super inspired from doing that and realized... So this was before you lived in the van? Yeah, I... Um, was having a lot of health issues in 2017 and related in relation to allergies. And so um, I met this guy and I had the opportunity to live in a sailboat for a month in San Diego. At that point, I had never left the state. Hmm. Of Alaska. Yeah. I had left very briefly as a child um, to visit Oregon for like a week and then I went to Virginia for a small amount of time, but nothing really significant and nothing really in relation to exploring. So I jumped on that opportunity to live on a sailboat and that was absolutely incredible. Something that I dreamed of ever since I was a little kid. And then when I got back to Alaska, I realized that I should leave and not stay the winter and go about my usual plan. So I started building out the van November 1st of 2017 and finished on December 3rd. And then I finished at 5 a.m. and I left for Canada at 10 a.m. And didn't look back and <laughs> headed down the Alcan. There was a period of three days where there was going to be all right weather. And it was going to be... And is this... When When are we talking? Like, early December, you said? Uh, December 3rd of 2017. And the Alcan, um, traveling through Yukon, the weather can get kind of intense starting in October. So by the time December rolls around, the roads are layered with ice and sand, usually. And so it's just kind of a big layered pile on top of the asphalt. Um... Everything's really slick. It's winter time. It can get kind of dangerous. Uh, and so the, for that three days, it was going to be a high of seven degrees. And I was like, okay, I can handle that. And then after that, it was going to be negative uh, 30. And you're traveling in your van. Are you like pulling over places to stay in the van or? Yeah, I was staying in the van. I didn't have any plans to rent anything. I didn't have a whole lot of money either. So... I just packed up the van full of oatmeal. <laughs> and, uh, and you have like a propane stove at yeah, this point? I had a two burner propane stove, still the one that I have today. Um, and then you're using the car's uh, heat? Yeah, the car, the van has a heater in the front and it has a heater in the back that before I disassembled everything, it had ducting that went up on the roof and on the side panels that would blow into the seats and whatever. I was going to get rid of that to save space, but my family thankfully convinced me not to, and they said you should have this heater. So I built it into the van. There's a vent that comes out um, near my bed, and so when I turn on the rear heater, it blows on my bed and kind of turns into hot pocket. That's nice. It's super nice. <laughs> I really like it. So did you run your car while you were sleeping a good bit or no? Um, because I was driving so long every day, for the three days I did um, a 12-hour day, a 15-hour day, and then another 12-hour day. And so the van, the heat was blowing all day long. And so by the time I went to bed, it was really hot in there. I was driving in like a tank top. Um... And it stayed warm in the van for five hours after it was off. It was kind of rough getting up in the morning. Um, I can imagine. With it being that cold. But 
it really was just drive all day, park, go to sleep, wake up early, drive more. And at the time, I didn't realize, but there was a really big storm that was following me down the Alcan. Uh, and I didn't have service or anything, so I didn't know that that was happening. But it was a really intense blizzard that was moving its way south. And I was, like, just in front of it by probably a couple hours. And it's uh, around zero degrees Fahrenheit a good bit of the time, right? Yeah, at that time it And was. you have, uh, you're on the highway with, it's just caked with mm -hmm. ice and sand. Yeah, ice and sand. Actually, Canada does a really good job at road maintenance, much better than Alaska, actually. And um, so there's, like, sand and ice and snow, and then in some certain mountain passes, they use this red clay. I don't know what it is, but it's really sticky. And um, it just looks kind of like red mud, and they mm. put that on top. And it, the whole van was, like, caked in it and red brown it's really interesting hmm. but that's supposed to help with traction um but still everything is white and at some point the snow is so high that you can't see the top of the trees anymore so in alaska you'll see these there's these poles look kind of like light poles but they come out from the side of the road and then they come over to the very edge and they have reflective stuff on them and that shows where the road ends because you can't really tell. So you just stay in between these, like, poles. So do you have special tires this whole time? Or, like, how did you... Yes. Before I went down, um, my partner at the time gave me the new tires off of his truck and took my van tires. They are Cooper Discover AT3s. Okay. They have really thick tread, um, probably, like, a pinky knuckle and a half amount of tread. And I had them siped as well, which for people that don't know is just, they take the tire and they cut it in the tread to give it more grooves to grip. So I had that done as well. I also put uh, 750 pounds of sandbags over the rear axle hmm. in the back, which helped so much. I thought it was kind of BS um, and didn't really matter. But when I got far enough down the Alcan, I was probably in the middle of British Columbia. I took probably 300 pounds of those sandbags out. And then in the parking lot, I spun out exiting. Whoa. Yeah, so it helped a lot. And your van is rear-wheel drive? Yes. And you can't switch it into four, right? No. Is that something that you've ever, like, missed or wished that you have? Um, my first car was a Saturn Sports Coupe. Tupperware like container vehicle <laughs> that was front wheel drive. And then um, I had an all wheel drive Honda CRV, and that was really great. And I even pulled like trucks out of the ditch with it sometimes. Super great car for winter. Um, but everyone that I've talked to that has a four wheel drive van says that they hardly ever use it and it's not worth it because it reduces your gas mileage by a lot. It's more expensive to like do the conversion. It's several thousand dollars. Usually I think the minimum is $5,000 to switch it to four wheel drive. Um, and they just don't, don't go off-roading that much. They said that a slight lift, like one or two inch lift, and then a locker rear end and nice all-season tires and snow chains can get you out of anything. Hmm. Which, 
from being in situations being stuck, I would say is accurate. Have you ever been stuck? Yes. On the Alcan, I got stuck. <laughs> I mean, even before I left the Alcan, I was exiting the garage that I was parked in and got stuck in like two inches of snow. Um, granted, Shelby was empty. And Shelby is the van. Yeah, Shelby is the name of my van. Um, and then on the Alcan, I pulled over to go pee and then got stuck in the little bit of snow that was on the side of the road. Which was very frustrating. I was only a couple hours into the Alcan and I was just very upset that that happened. Um, but I did manage to get out. Uh, How? Like, do you travel with a shovel? and? I did have a shovel. Um, which my partner at the time insisted that I brought, and I was like, I don't need a full-size shovel, whatever. He's like, bring the shovel. <laughs> which I was super happy that he did. Um, I didn't end up using the shovel until, like, much later in the desert with a pea gravel incident. <laughs> um, but if you're in snow, it's fairly easy to get out of compared to other materials, in my opinion. Easier than mud, easier than sand, because there's an end to the snow. Hmm. And so if you roll forward and then let your vehicle roll back and then roll forward and roll back and like kind of rock your vehicle and get momentum going and then floor it, you can usually get out. Okay. <laughs> I'm just picturing this whole situation. Yeah. And it's excellent. It's, um... Little Alaskan trick. We've gotten stuck a couple times, but never really in snow, I don't think. On ice and sand, but never snow. Sand is super frustrating. Yeah. The first time I got stuck in sand was in January of 2017. And I was stupidly following someone into the desert um, who didn't know what he was doing. And we hit this huge patch of sand. And that's the thing is there's no end to mm -hmm. sand. And if you try to do that same rollback and thing. You just um, dig deeper. You just dig so deep, and then you're really screwed. So what did you do in the sand? Well, um, I started that's started using that shovel. <laughs> uh, dug it out, and then I took my floor mats from mm -hmm. the driver's seat and the passenger seat and shoved them underneath the tires and tried to get out that way. Um, that didn't work on my vehicle because I just dug myself super deep because I didn't know. But the person who was in front of me, his van wasn't as deep as mine. And the floor mat trick worked for him. But luckily I was with this other person who had a dirt bike and his van wasn't there. So he drove his dirt bike to go get his van and ended up pulling us out. Wow. Yeah, which was very helpful. That's awesome. Yeah. So where were you heading when you were going down the Alcan, your first destination from Alaska? Uh, San Diego. I wanted sunshine so bad that I wanted to go as far south as I possibly could. So I went from Palmer, Alaska to San Diego in six days, which is almost 6,000 miles. It's really intense. I don't recommend that. Um... <laughs> So you're doing like 15-hour days driving? Yeah. Do you go the speed limit in the van or...? No. Okay. I don't. Um, from day to day, yeah, I do. I don't condone this, but uh, on the Alcan, I drive like 70 to 80 miles an hour. It is really open road and there's nobody out there, so 
and most of the time I have a destination with a time limit. So I'm trying to get it done as fast as possible. And I've also done it five times. So I'm just want it to be over. So you get to San Diego. I, assuming that there's... I'm sure there's lots of stories in between. I... Yeah. Well, not even really. I, like... It took three days to get out of Canada. I arrived in Washington, sat in the van in this store parking lot, and had an emotional episode of just, like, thank God uh, that's over. And was like, okay, well, I'm going to move more south now. I stopped for probably 30 minutes, continued driving. I went from the border of Washington to Coos Bay, Oregon. And I spent the night in Coos Bay, Oregon and visited with um, my previous partner's aunt for an evening. And then I drove from Coos Bay, Oregon to Central California. And I went to a farm sanctuary down there, which was so fun. What is that? Um, it's this... I wish I could remember the name of the farm sanctuary, but it's this woman who rescues farm animals who have had really terrible lives. She's either saving them from slaughter, saving them from abuse, or whatever. Um, And each animal is treated with a lot of respect, and there's a big seminar beforehand of the body language of animals, and if they want to be pet, they'll have you pet them, and if they walk away, like, don't go after them. It was just super cool, and I'd been donating to them for three years, and I finally got to, like, meet the animals that I was donating to, which was so cool. So I went there, and they were really sweet, and I was like, yeah, I just drove from Alaska, and they thought that was cool, and uh, I think we were there for maybe, maybe two or three hours, and then I continued to drive to San Diego. And then after San Diego... Once when I got there, it was, I went through kind of a little depression because it was so incredibly jarring just for my brain to travel that far by hand, like me operating a vehicle going that distance. And I thought that once when I was around palm trees and sunshine, I would be happy and all my problems would go away. And they didn't. Uh, I felt like the first time I left Alaska, it was a little bit of running away and just trying to get away from whatever was bothering me and maybe some tropical flowers will fix that. Um, and I did a whole painting about that too, about that realization. I can't even imagine the stress because when we travel, we haven't traveled that far, but even traveling like from Kansas City down into Arizona over the course of a few days, like, we weren't pushing it as hard as you were. We were stressed out, and there's two of us. So I just drive, and Elsa navigates and can, like, co-pilot. But being solo, that would just be crippling amounts of stress. At points, it was really intense, um, especially going from the Alcan or living in Alaska your whole life is a whole added aspect but even just through the from the Alcan into Seattle is extreme culture shock it's like you're in you're it's just you in the wilderness for a really long time and there's northern lights every night and it's dark and the first time I went down the Alcan it was a full moon 
So sometimes I even didn't even drive with headlights because it was so bright. You could just Because see. of the reflection off the yeah, snow and stuff? It was just like, it looked like daylight. Granted, I only did it for like 30 seconds here and there. <laughs> but it was just so cool. And I mean, the northern lights were so bright. It was lighting up everything. Everything looked bright green. And the animals. And I didn't see another vehicle for hours and hours sometimes. Really? Yeah. And are there gas stations? Um, the gas stations are few and far between. There is a lot more in the summer, and most of them close in the wintertime. Mm-hmm. So from, like, Alaska to Chetwind in British Columbia, there's few gas stations. A lot of them are just meant for truckers. So okay. you have to really be careful about where you're filling up and monitor your gas. I wouldn't even recommend going below half a tank. And... If you do, I mean, you should really fill up at whatever next one you see. I had 10 gallons of gas that I brought the first time. At this point, I don't bring any extra gas because I just know where everything is and I don't worry about it much. Um, But, yeah, from that experience of completely life-changing and beautiful, wouldn't recommend it in the wintertime at all, but still cool thing that I did in my life I suppose to going into Seattle and having like a crazy amount of people and roads and like an interstate Alaska doesn't have an interstate it doesn't have more than a two lane highway Mm -hmm. and at one point on the way in Anchorage there's three lanes but it's not that long of a distance I don't know maybe 15-20 miles of three lanes uh And that's, I mean, that's all I've ever known. So, like, that to Seattle to San Diego, it was super overwhelming. And I would take wrong turns 20 times a day and just be lost all the time and not know where I'm going. And it's so complicated. So where were you going? Like, how did you you determine that? Um, My uh, partner at the time who had the sailboat was in San Diego. And so... I went to San Diego because it was sunny and beautiful, but I also had just spent a month there, so I felt like I knew it just a little bit. Um, And it was just beautiful and very van-friendly. I could park anywhere on the beach and just chill out. So that was kind of why I did that, and I also didn't know anything. So I clung on to the one shred of knowledge that I did have. Even at that point, I think I was in... I got down there December 6th, and then I stayed there until January 11th, and then I went to RTR. How did you find out about River Tramp Rendezvous? I I was doing so much research for van stuff and, like, looking at builds, and every, like, it completely absorbed my whole being because it was that important to me. And through that and through YouTube, I found Bob Wells, and I found the Rubber Tramp Rendezvous. And I found that in, I think, August of 2017. He announced the dates of uh, the next Rubber Tramp Rendezvous. And I remember telling my family, I was like, this is the first place I'm going to (laughs) go. I'm going to go to this gathering, and it's going to be so fun. And I didn't know where Quartzsite was. I didn't... I'd never been there. I had no idea how to get there or anything. Um, 
and I set that goal, and then I was living my life in San Diego in the van and sometimes on the boat every once in a while. And I looked at the date, and it was the 10th or the 11th, and it started on the 11th. And I was like, oh, I have to leave. <laughs> I gotta go. <laughs> yeah, like right now. Like how far away is Quartzsite, and where is Quartzsite, and what is it? And so I, how far away was it? Maybe four, four hours, five hours away? Oh, that's it. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to leave right this second. And I just got in the van and started heading that way. And I had never seen any kind of landscape like that before. Like the huge boulders on, I think it's the 8 going from San Diego to Arizona. And then the sand dunes. I'd never seen a sand dune before. I did, it was so weird. And I was like, holy cow, there's sand not next to water. <laughs> and it was amazing. I was like, you could snowboard down the sand dunes and it'd be way fun and you don't have to be in puffy snow gear and be cold. <laughs> note to self. <laughs> yeah, note to self next time I'm down here. And it felt so serendipitous too because in the sand dunes I arrived when, I think they're the imperial sand dunes, uh, it was sunset. And the sunset was a rainbow. There was every single color of the rainbow in the sky, and it was like pink and blue, and the clouds were orange and like green at times, and there was purples and yellows. It was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen, and I just stopped there, and I was like, wow, this is my path. (laughs) (laughs) I'm on it. I'm on this path. Um, So I took some pictures there, and one of the paintings that I did about RTR, I made her skin tone the colors of all the sun of the in the sunset that night. And so I arrived in Quartzsite at night. It was pitch black, and I didn't know where I was going. And Bob Wells, bless his heart, but his directions to find this place were not very good. And they were a little like hand drawn map. And he said there was a dog leg, and I didn't know what that meant. And I was like, what the hell is a dog leg? <laughs> and so he's like, there's an RV park and the dog leg, and follow this red line. And I was like, oh, I'd never been in the desert before. I didn't know what it was like. And so I was in the dark trying to find this place, and it took me four hours, and I realized that, well, it's not over here. I don't know what's happening. I started crying, and then I called my partner. I was like, I don't know what to do. I don't know where I am. I'm lost. And he's like, well, why don't you go talk to the dude at the gas station and ask him where it is? And at that time, I really struggled with social anxiety really, really bad. And I couldn't even get the courage to talk to this guy, just random gas station man. And so I, like, worked myself up, and I, like, wiped away my tears, and I went over and asked him. He's like, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't know what that is. And then that was even more discouraging. And I had an Alaska carrier with my phone, and so, like, I didn't have very good service either. And turns out I was on the wrong side of the street. And it was just simply... The exact directions, but on the other side of the highway. Not sure how I found that out. Um, So was it morning by this time? No, it was still at night. Uh, And then I rolled up into RTR and I like saw vehicles and people and I was like, okay, this is it. And I just parked in somewhere. And then in the morning, 
I still, like, had to psych myself up to even ask someone, like... Is this the RTI? Yeah, like, can I park <laughs> yeah. here or something? Like, is this okay? And it was crazy. And I remember I stepped out of my van, and the first thing that I saw was this big hunk of citrine right in front of my van. I was like, this is another sign. <laughs> <laughs> and the people that I originally parked next to were very nice. Um, we didn't have much in common. I would say. Older? Yeah, they were older, which nothing is wrong with that, but they were just really quiet, and that's okay, but I was kind of looking for something else, and when I went to the seminar in the morning, they talked about a art camp and music camp. I was like, okay, that sounds more like my thing, and then I went out um, looking for this mystical music camp, which there was no signs or anything, and I was driving around aimlessly. And then this guy kept on looking at me. And I was like, why is he looking at me? Like, who is that? And it turns out it was this guy, Brockton, who I had met in San Diego like a week or two before at um, this guy Into the Mystery. He posts YouTube fan life videos a while ago. It was his little meetup that I met this Brockton guy. So he told me, he was like, hey, you should park at the end of the cul-de-sac. And like, it's okay, whatever, you can go there. And I was like, okay, cool. So I went there and parked, and then it was changed my life completely. So to describe the situation some, it's in the middle of the desert. It's like completely flat. You can see kind of forever. It's surrounded yeah. kind of by mountains. Mm-hmm. There's, some, there's some mountains off in the distance. There's a lot of, um, there's some like big saguaro cactus a lot of bush cactus and then teeny tiny little perfect toe puncturing cactus yeah. <laughs> and really sharp rocks and like, then lots of kind of washes yeah which i didn't know what a wash was but it's just like these big ditches yeah um they can be a little a shallow ditch or an aggressive ditch um and they can flood when it floods yeah, they can flood but you have to navigate around the ditch like washes so it's they all kind of look like fingers and you don't want to drive in one because it hurts the wildlife and uh yeah which that was completely foreign to me also i i never had seen anything like that i i grew up in at the base of a mountain and with water and trees and rivers and like it was so dry and it was hot and there was no shade and like I am a redhead, and my skin is so burn-sensitive, and I was just crispy all the time, and I had to wear this stupid huge sun hat, and was just, like, getting sweaty, and it was terrible. So, in this vast desert environment, there's thousands of RVs. Yes, which, that was a surprise to everyone, I feel, because the year before, there was 800 people, and then... That year, in 2017, there was 4,000. So, I mean, massive. And really easy to get lost, too. Because everything kind of looks the same. It does. We had to mentally kind of chart the different RVs or buses or mm -hmm. people had flags up. Yeah, I remember I met this guy, Dan, at... Uh, in the main camp area, and I was trying to give him directions to where my van was. And I, said, I told him, I was like, okay, you go straight, and you 
go through three washes, and then you're going to see a rainbow streamer on the left, and then you follow that rainbow streamer, you go through that corridor, then there's a sunshine bus, and you go past the sunshine bus, and then there's going to be a Bob Marley flag, and I'm parked in front of that one. And he was like, this isn't even real. <laughs> it's not actual words you were saying. He's like, that's not directions. I was like, I don't know. That's the best I can do. Sorry. And this is when we met you. Right? Yes. Yeah, we met at the 2017 RTR. When we met, you seemed like an OG. Like, <laughs> don't you think? She seemed like she had it figured out. Well, granted, I had lived in vehicles since I was 16. So I kind of knew what it was about. Um, the van was actually a big upgrade. I So yeah, I knew a little bit about how to live on the road, but everything was still super new and I'd never done it officially full-time. It was all just of circumstance and sucky living in a car. No stove, no preparation or comfort, just the happening. Um, but... Yeah, I mean, it was super new. I had only, I was reading my diary the other day, and when I met you guys, I had been on the road for 31 days. Yeah. And how long had we been on the road at that point? Um, maybe a year. Because we were in Sedona, and we met Morgan and David, and they told us about RTR. Mm -hmm. So then we just kind of went down there on a whim. I can't believe that we hadn't heard about it, really. Yeah. Like, we'd heard whisperings about it online, or people mentioning that they were going to it a couple times. But for how many people were there and how popular it was, I can't believe that we didn't know that it was a thing. Well, it seems like it's really boomed in popularity the last few years. Yeah. Yeah. And now it's, what, like almost unmanageable to go? I would personally say that if it's your very first time and you're new to the road, go. If you don't know how to do navigate things or know about solar or how to build out your rig... But if you've been doing this for a while, there's a lot of people, and it's kind of getting just intense to go, for me personally. Um, some people I can see really enjoy it. I met a huge group of people who, like our experience in 2017, where it was amazing, we met a lot of people, and it was super cool. That was their experience this past year. But I think you have to create that yourself. Mm -hmm. I personally wouldn't go again nothing bad to Bob Wells at all, like super happy and that event changed my life, but I just have other things that I'm doing right now. What I noticed when we were there is I thought it was going to be more structured almost, or yeah. people were going to be a lot more like community oriented, mm -hmm. but it's a bunch of sort of solitary nomadic people. <laughs> yeah. So, but most people are really inviting and kind, but I found myself having to go like, okay, I'm going to go explore and talk to people and, like, yeah. try to learn stuff and ask a bunch of questions. Because if I didn't make that effort, then it was kind of like, what What do I do now? Yeah, you it know? is what you make it. Right. Yeah, it wasn't like, it felt a lot like a burn without being like a burn. <laughs> it was like an older, because there's a lot more, um, like, it seemed like an, a thing for people over 50 there were a lot of yes. older people there so we did have to make the effort to go out and seek people and your cul-de-sac was like the coolest group that's of where young it was popping it was the cool spot yeah. <laughs> we just found a spot to park whatever seemed open with morgan and david and then 
it was too much of a hassle. At that time, we really didn't have too much experience moving, moving. So and honestly, your cul-de-sac was like too fun for me. <laughs> I, had to, like, I had to go over there in bursts and then go like retreat and recharge. And then it's like, okay, I think I have enough to like get in the cul-de-sac. It, it was super fun. And all of the people in the cul-de-sac, we ended up being super good friends. We were all strangers too. Nobody knew each other. But we ended up traveling for two months after RTR in a big caravan. So cool. And we're all friends still today. Which That's is awesome. So cool. That was the first time I'd ever seen or heard of that, of nomads traveling together. Caravaning. We yeah. met a lot of people at RTR who did that and who then went to Slab City or Joshua Tree uh-huh. after that. And that, I, that was so new to me. We didn't really do much of that. We kind of stick to our ourselves but we did meet up with some friends later on yeah. here and there as they're still with their caravanning groups did you where did you go after rtr um so in order i went to tucson arizona um and then i went to hopeville california and then from hopeville i went to san diego for a day then i went to slab city that was interesting. Um, I thought I was going to be in Slab City for a day. Ended up being over a week, a week and a half. Can we give some context into what Slab City is? Um, Since you've been there. Yeah, Slab City... I I don't want to like upset anyone in my um, description, but this is what I've heard. This is what I've gathered from going there. Is the history... The government, for some reason disowned this plot of land. People say it's not part of America. There's no, like, authorities on this land. There's no rules on this land. Um, some people call it the last free place in America. It sounded super cool at the time. Um, it's in the middle of the desert in Imperial County, I think, and there's a bunch of people that live there full-time. There's also travelers. They stay in this place called the Lowe's, which is loners on wheels, I think. And um, it can be really cool. And there's lots of music and there's different camps. There's like pirate camp and um, like a more bluegrassy kind of camp. And then like a rave camp and so many other different things. You can go and you pu- you can party. You can do anything you want. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of drugs there. There, I mean, there's this one dude that like the army or the armed forces or whatever. I'm not sure what sect does bomb testing on this like mountain range. And there's a guy in Slab City who will put off bombs when they do and like try to outdo them and how big <laughs> the bomb is. It's anything goes kind of land. Uh, Super cool for a little bit of time, but it just got stressful and you have to constantly watch your back kind of thing. People have been known to also, if they don't like you, they'll just set your stuff on fire. When I was there in that week period of time, three RVs blew up and were on fire. And then someone also roofied an entire camp. And supposedly the... Like, this girl, my friend, we found this girl at the hot springs, like, naked and separated from her partner, and she had to take him to the hospital, and for sure, they were roofied at this camp, and people say that somebody died. I don't know. 
cannot confirm or deny whether anybody died, but it's just intense, you know? And, like, if you're really up for anything, cool, but I... It's kind of a lot. It's a lot, and I don't know, maybe, like, oh, let's go to Slab City and look at the cool art. There's this place called um, East Jesus, and it's a bunch of cool art, and, like, an adult jungle gym, and... It's art with a message. It can it talks about society or things like that. And there's cool domes and weird garbage everywhere that's turned into art. There's Salvation Mountain, which has like this mountain with a bunch of words on it and a lot of Instagramming people take pictures in front of it. But if they're too chicken to like go all the way into Slab City, they'll go to Salvation Mountain, which is at the front, and they'll take pictures and be like, Oh, we went. But really they didn't. <laughs> Uh, there's a hot springs there. Hot springs is gross. It's like actually opaque brown. Mm. And there's like razors and feminine hygiene products floating in it. It's really gross. And people are washing their wounds and just shaving their bits. It's not fun. And then there's like, oh, this irrigation like tunnel thing that's the perfect swimming hole. Turns out it's not. It's full of chemicals. Like, agriculture chemicals. I didn't know that. I swam in it. But I got some in my mouth. And it tasted like death. Hmm. But it's clear. Water. Interesting. Um, and then there's a shower. Which is like this also tunnel of all that irrigation water flowing under a bridge. Which seems super cool. Turns out that's a bunch of chemicals too. So... Hmm. Was it helpful in, like, you're doing all this crazy stuff and seeing all these crazy experiences. You are still solo van life woman. But yeah. in caravanning, do you think that, uh, would you have gone to Slab City alone? Or was that I, just part of your group? I technically did. I went to Slab City alone and I wasn't expecting all the people from the cul-de-sac to be there. I showed up and everybody was there and I was like oh man and then everyone else showed up and I was like what but um I would have just gotten by myself to just check it out I also was in this phase where I had done so much research and like research was my comfort of knowing absolutely everything before I do it that when I went on the road I stopped doing that on purpose and I was like I'm not gonna research anything so then I'm surprised, and then we'll see what happens. So I didn't know, really, about Slab City, the nitty-gritty. Okay. Yeah. It was it was a surprise. So then from there, you spent like a week around that area, and then... I spent a week in that area, and then we went to the... We went to Joshua Tree, and we stayed on a hippie commune there for a little over a week. And then we left there, stayed in Joshua Tree BLM. It was around Valentine's Day of 2017. And I went back to San Diego. And I was there for a couple days, and then the whole caravan showed up a little bit after I did. Okay. And we hung out in San Diego for a good while. But we started blowing up our spots. We were a caravan of like eight vehicles. We were all parking together every night, and people were like, wow, this is a huge group of people that are all, like, parking right next to the ocean. It was really obvious. So we kind of had to mix it up and go other places and um, break apart for a little bit. That makes sense. Yeah. 
<laughs> but it was so fun though. It was like cool camp and everybody got along and we were just sitting by campfire and chit-chatting every night and sharing stories. It was just a blast. So how much of the time do you think you spend like by yourself? When I am in Alaska, I'm completely by myself 100% of the time. So also That's counterintuitive. I would think that like back home you would be around other humans and then vice versa. Yeah, I go and see my family. I try to do it at least once a week um, to visit them and my sister had a baby and so I want to like be in his life and like have him know me and stuff. So, and I love my family. <laughs> um, so I, I try to visit them and uh, hang out, but traveling wise, I do the festivals and I have one every weekend for six months. So I'm just constantly moving and sometimes I'll see people I know at the festival and they'll come get painted by me and various stuff like that. But I don't think we mentioned that you are a face painter. Uh, Had we? Yeah, yeah, in the beginning. Just briefly though. Okay. So you're going from festival to festival and Working face painting. Yeah. yeah, and face painting um, and doing that. And the festivals are really far apart. Alaska's huge and so I'm going anywhere from Fairbanks to Homer which is like the interior of Alaska all the way down to like the very central tip. But yeah, I mean, sometimes I have to drive like nine hours to a festival. So what is that like being up in, because Alaska is not soft country. No, it's definitely not. In the summer, it's so lush and amazing and beautiful and probably the best place that you can be in the summer. It's absolutely stunning. And long 24 hours of daylight and everything. Actually 24 hours. Yeah. I mean, they say that it's not in certain areas. They're like, oh, it's 23.5. But I mean, still, you know, this, it doesn't get dark at all. Like actual darkness. The sun will like go across the horizon and the whole sky will turn pink for like an hour, two hours, sometimes three hours. Or other colors, I mean, orange or whatever. <laughs> Sunset colors. And then it'll come back up. So at like 2 a.m., the sun will be back up again. It gets twilight. Fascinating. Yeah. So you're in your... So then I guess if it's never nighttime, that makes it a little bit more safe feeling, right? Or is that not a thing? In the sun. I don't ever... I might just be because of my home. I don't ever feel super unsafe uh, in Alaska. I'm used to the wildlife, that's just kind of how it is. And you have this dart up all the time. It's actually so relaxing to come down here. You're just like, oh, I don't have to worry about that. Wow, I can just like be in the woods. Mostly bears, right? Bears and moose. Um, or just driving mm. around. And if you're in the woods in Alaska, you have to look for moose. But you can be in Washington, just be roaming around and not even think about it. Like your nerves can chill for a little bit. Yeah. Um... But, yeah, I don't feel super in danger in Alaska. Uh, but, but when you park, your food has to be... Like, how do you do that? Um, I don't ever set out food personally. Like, I don't ever, like, make food outside of my van. Just because I have a table in there and everything's easy to reach. It's just convenience. Um, but if I did, when you're sleeping at night, you would have to take all of your stuff and put it back in your vehicle. Have you ever had bears sniff around and kind of check out what's going on? Me personally, no. But granted, I don't stay in one spot for very long. Mm. And, um, but for example, I was working a festival 
um, Fiddlehead Festival in Girdwood, Alaska. My mom came, and she has a little uh, Volkswagen Beetle. She had a bunch of snacks in there, and there was a mom and three cubs, a black bear, and they found my mom's bug in the parking lot and tried breaking her sunroof and tried getting in there, and she had, like, little baby bear prints all over her vehicle. Uh, the staff, like, chased them off and whatever, but, you know, they've been known to, like, rip your entire door off to get in your vehicle or, like, completely punch in your windshield or the side windows is usually what they go for. And they'll just, like, get up on their legs and just, like, bam with their paws. Just bash it. Just bash it in um, and rip up your seats and all of that but usually i don't know those people are either parked on trailheads for long periods of time and left like gummy bears in their glove box or something <laughs> that was an actual story i heard on the news yeah i mean i grew up at the base in the mountain like i said and there was bears all over all the time and i never had any bad encounters and they never broke into our cars my sister got chased by a black bear once but she was already running okay that's <laughs> what you were saying earlier is yeah. the key is don't run around the bears. Do not run. Or, or go jogging. Yeah, just don't go jogging in the woods. That would be my advice. If you want to go jogging, go on the street. And even still... Get a treadmill. <laughs> More or less. What What's kind of the difference between being in Alaska and being here? Like, what do you... What do you notice being from there? Because we have a... Our perspective is we've lived in... The greater 48, you know, yeah. or the lesser 48. <laughs> so how do you, what's um, your perspective like on being in the States? The running joke in Alaska, we call it down in America, um, referring to the lower 48, just because it, it is so different to start with. The landscape is incredibly different. It's more dramatic. I would say the closest thing to Alaska is Washington, um, Washington feels like Alaska's cooler baby sister. It's a lot more biodiverse, but like the, the waterways and the mountains and, um, the greenery is kind of similar. Uh, Alaska mainly, like in South Central, the most populated area, there's three types of trees for the most part. It's cottonwood, white birch, and black spruce. And so you look in the forest and that's pretty much all that there is. There, the trees are also short. You'll notice that when you go through Canada, the trees will be really big. And then as you go north, they get like shorter and shorter and shorter. Mm. And then like really in the interior in Alaska, the trees are super stumpy. Maybe like Interesting. 10 feet. Are they bigger near the coast? The coast? Well, I've never been to the west coast far north in Alaska. But the west, the coast... In South Central, yeah, they're bigger, the trees are. But I think that's also because you're far south. On the Panhandle, which is, like, neighboring Canada, the trees are bigger. Okay. But after Fairbanks, um, the trees get shorter and shorter and then go away completely, and it turns into tundra. So there's no mountains, and there's no trees. Hmm. It's like rolling hills of little brush. Super dramatic, lots of mountains in South Central. I mean, Denali. I think Denali is like the second or third tallest mountain in the world. It's over 26,000 feet. Wow, I did not know it was that tall. It's so huge. And it's not just like 
a peak, like a mountain. It's a giant nodule mass, and then there's a huge Alaska range around it. Can you see it from, yes. like, hundreds of miles away? Or? Yes. So, Denali is, um, so there's Anchorage, that most people are familiar with where that is, and then you go north, east, just a little bit, and it's almost to Fairbanks, which is in the very middle of the state. You can see Denali from Wasilla, uh, like downtown Wasilla, which is, I think, eight miles from Palmer. Very far away, hundreds of miles away. Wow. Um, you can get like a perfect little angle, and on a clear day, you can see it. Granted, because it's so large, it has its own weather. Interesting. So most of the time, you can't see it. My friend Josh, who visited me in Alaska, and we he was up there for six weeks. He didn't see Denali once. Wow. That's incredible. But, hopefully he'll see it sometime. But um, it's absolutely massive. I mean, when you see it, you want to cry. It is so giant and beautiful. And noticeably extremely large. Even from really far away. Like, wow, that is for sure Denali right there. <laughs> um, there's other mountains that are absolutely huge as well. Or you're super close to them, so they seem huge. Like in Palmer, uh, there's Pioneer Peak, Matanuska Peak, Lazy Mountain. That's like right there. And Palmer is at the very base of those mountains. So when you are just a casual person and the Fred Meyer parking lot, the mountains are way more than half the horizon. Wow. They're like, you have to, you're looking up and you're How seeing. tall are the, is the range generally? Um, the Pioneer Peak in Palmer is 6,000, almost 7,000 feet, but seems way bigger just because you're so close. I'm not sure the average height of a mountain in Alaska, but they're noticeably larger than anything down here. You haven't been to Colorado, though. True. But I'm not saying that it would <laughs> definitely compete, but I don't know. But that's like kind of the joke of where Alaskans come down to visit the lower 48. And they're like, oh, that's not a mountain. That's a hill. <laughs> <laughs> Let's dive into Vanstock and talk about the Alaskan festival that you'll be holding. Yes. So Vanstock. Tell us about Vanstock and what it is and... Vanstock is Alaska's first van life gathering slash travelers festival. That sounds really cool. Who could put on a thing like that? I am doing that. <laughs> um, because I've worked in the festival industry for eight years, and I'm also a member of the Nomad community, and Alaska has never had a, an event like this before. I figured it was a natural evolution for my career as well as like a gift to the community. Um, and I would probably be one of the most qualified people to do it. Um, so basically, Vanstock is a gathering of people. Um, it's kind of a campout style, so it's going to be... July 17th through the 20th, 2020. It's on a 200-acre piece of property on top of Lazy Mountain. It's a giant, enormous hayfield. It's going to be 200 camping vehicles, 450 people maximum. So anywhere from like a van or a trailer or a motorcycle, bike or tent, whatever you want to bring up there to camp in, you can. 
you just have to have something to camp in. And there's a lot of different van life gatherings um, around the country. There's Descend on Bend, that is a huge one and probably one of the most successful. There is a uh, the, the RTR, like we talked about. There's There was one up in Washington, one in Colorado, there was one in Tennessee, popping up all over the place. And what it is, is it just a gathering place for nomads to meet and camp out and have a good time and share stories, experiences, cool places to visit. Vanstock is going to be a little bit more in-depth than just a gathering. It's going to have some festival elements as well. So there's going to be entertainment, vendors, um, activities, things like that. It won't be just communal camping. There will be a stage area. Um, I'm going to have some really successful local bands come. The, like some of the best bands from around Alaska. Yeah, right? the, the three best bands in the state. I don't want to name names just quite yet, just in case if something falls out, but that will be released soon-ish. Um, some I've gotten contacted from other people who live in vehicles or travel nomadically who are musicians who want to come and play. There will be an open mic. There will be like a story time of just sharing funny or um, interesting stories. I thought about having like an embarrassing bathroom story because I feel like most nomads have a emergency funny bathroom story to share. I, the native groups are going to come. So there's lots of different tribes in Alaska. There's Athabascan, Clinkit, Inupiat, various different people. Um, but luckily one of my family friends is, is native Alaskan. And I have secured Georgie, who is one of the best native Alaskan drummers in the state. He's going to come and do an opening ceremony. I also have a native Alaskan dance group that's going to be there. And some native youth Olympics activities for people to try. Like ear pull, blanket toss, um, high kick, things like that. I thought that would be really important for Vanstock to have. Because a lot of people... Are going to be traveling from really far distances to come to this thing and have never visited and I think that the most important part of visiting Alaska is understanding the locals and what it's like to actually be there and so the best way that I could think of to do that is showcase the natives and the indigenous people that have lived there forever and it's super interesting as well um, growing up that was just part of my life and I just knew all about that and we made the fans and we painted wind socks and um, talked about seal hunting and tried different native Alaskan foods but that would be such a cool experience for people who are visiting and they wouldn't really be able to experience that firsthand. Yeah, it's not very accessible I wouldn't think. Mm -hmm. There is a couple um, Native arts museums or native history museums in Anchorage. It's still a museum, you know. Every it's quiet. You're looking at things. It's not interactive. You're not actually having these experiences with natives and locals. So there's going to be that. There's going to be three different activity fields where various outdoor games are going to be played: frisbee, yoga outdoor seminars. I thought about having some things on sustainability, 
how to reduce your waste living a mobile lifestyle, solar workshops, Alaska history workshops, maybe even a scavenger hunt around the property because it's so massive, having facts about Alaska, and you go and you like collect all the little trinkets and facts about things and different people and... Far more interactive than just a meetup. Yes, so... All the festivals that Alaska have had are centered either around music or um, vendors, and like camping is really separate, or it's just a day thing. This is all about community and people coming together, and that's the coolest part about Vanstock is what makes it is you. You coming and sharing your story and interacting with people and exploring and whatever you have to bring to the table several community events. We're going to have a potluck on Sunday or Monday morning. We're going to have a pancake breakfast for everyone before they have to leave. You know, and everyone just come and hang out and talk and share experiences. And I'm going to have several locals be talking about their favorite spots and where you should go and what to do. And I think that was so important as well because so many people don't know about that all you really know about alaska or information that you can get is some books or the internet or pinterest i've learned more speaking to you about it over the course of an hour than i ever could have fathomed knowing and it's hard too because what do you even type in to figure it out favorite local spots okay well you're gonna get like moose's tooth pizzeria (laughs) you're gonna get you know a couple other like must-sees so to get there that's going to be a thing for a lot of people if we choose to go. We could organize, you were talking about, like, caravans to go up to Alcan and vice versa, come yes. back down. Yes, there is an official caravan that is happening. I'm not quite sure if it's officially released yet, but my friend Sam and this guy, um, Matt, who his handle is enjoythejourney.today, they are hosting their own Vanstock gathering, which I approved and everything, but it's going to be from Baja, Mexico, all the way up to Alaska. People can come and join it and leave whenever they want, but the ultimate goal is to take a lot of people up there, which I think is absolutely incredible and blows my mind that it's even happening. But that's really useful for people who's never left the country before, let's say, or has a lot of fear or concerns in relation to driving that far. They can join a bunch of people that may or may not have done it before, but everybody's in a group. If you break down in the middle of nowhere, you have people to help you. Um, So I think a lot of people are going to be joining that caravan and forming your own Would you suggest doing that, like traveling with, if it's your first time traveling with another vehicle, like several vehicles or solo spine? I think it really depends on you as a person. I don't like caravanning with people I'm not close with. That's just who I am. I'm fairly private, and so I have to really like you a lot in order to want to travel with you. Um, Some people just love company and want to do that. Um, But, I mean, I've done the Alcan five times and have been by myself. The first couple times I did it, I had zero mechanical knowledge at all. So I think it's very doable, Uh, especially in the summer. Um, You can go by yourself, or if... Hanging out with other people is your thing. I want to, like, have a resource of people that are going to go and, like, hey, you can talk to each other and 
form something if you want cool. to. Is there like a discussion board or a group or anything that people could join? That is in the works. Okay. Um, I think that would be really helpful and something that I want to do for that reason of people who want to join on the way up there. Yeah. Because it is so far from Washington. It kind of depends on where you're going to go in the state, but to get to Palmer from Washington, it's about 2,800 miles, 20 to like 3,000 miles, depending on where you're coming from. So that is really far. You definitely have to plan for that. It's not something that I would recommend just, hey, next week, let's go to Vanstock. It's probably going to take you at least a week to get there in general. With gas, for me, you need to plan that as well. If you plan on coming all the way up to Alaska, you need to have money saved. I mean, there's lots of job opportunities in Alaska for seasonal work that you could look into as well. Princess Tours is one of them. They hire people from all over the world to come and work on the train. If you're not doing that, you do need to have some of money. And if you do want to do that, you need to plan for it. Because you were saying it costs you around $700. Yeah, an average of $700 one way. Um, my van on the Alcan gets 14 miles to the gallon. Normally it gets 18 to 22. But the Alcan is mountain pass most of the time. It's pretty much uphill both ways. So it's a journey. It is an intense journey, but it is absolutely stunning. And then, so you would suggest staying there for like at least a month, right? At least a month, because let's give some wiggle room. It's going to take you a week to get up and a week to get down. That's two weeks. Alaska is so beautiful, and there's so much to see. And to, it's always daylight. It's at this time. always <laughs> daylight. So I think at like a month at least, you can do two weeks. I personally wouldn't think that's worth it. You'd be missing out on a lot. And if you chose to go to Vanstock, that's four days out of your two weeks that you are in one spot. Of course, it's going to be a really cool experience, but you're not going to be actively traveling for that time. What about those people who like the idea of going to Vanstock in Alaska, but they don't have their own van, cannot afford to spend two weeks traveling to Alaska? Are there options for them? Yes. I've gotten several messages from people who say who have those concerns of they don't have a van, they don't have the means to drive up, or their vehicle they don't think mechanically will make it. For those people, there are some awesome options. I'm currently working with two van companies to work out discounts for that. So you buy a ticket to van stock, you get a percentage off of a van rental company to rent your van for your whole trip in Alaska or just the weekend, whatever you want to do. And then you can take that van, explore, and go to van stock with it with a percentage off with buying the ticket. Um, that is still in the works, but that's the ultimate goal, which is super exciting. Supporting local business as well. There isn't any big conglomerate van company up there yet. It's all just small. Will you do any, like, tents set up for people if they were going to fly in and that kind of thing? Yes. If you don't want to rent a van, there is an option to sleep in a tent. There's a whole, going to be an entire tent field. So you can fly up, rent a car, and go to van stock with a tent. Or any locals that want to come, you can get dropped off at the land and take your stuff. We're going to have a four-wheeler there to take you, because the land is very large, to take you to your spot with all of your gear and stuff to get your setup. Although, because there is only space for 
200 vehicles, or I shouldn't say only space, but that is the negotiation with the land this year, is parking on the perimeter of the land. You'll each get around 20 feet of space, and it will be in a giant square. And then Cool. That's really nice. Yeah. And then all of the activities will happen in the big field. And, like, that's the communal space. What will the temperature be? The temperature in July at that time is the best time in the entire year, which is exactly why I chose those dates. <laughs> um, it will be in probably the high 60s and sunny all day long. Because when it's in the high 60s, there's no like nighttime temperature. It just is the high yes. 60s. Um, the high 60s in Alaska is different than the high 60s down here. Because the sun is so high in the sky, it feels way hotter. Um, and also just like the angle of the whole math and biz is hotter. Um, and there's also, it doesn't cool down. So if it is going to be 70 degrees, it's 70 degrees from 2 o'clock in the morning until midnight. And it'll go down probably by maximum 5 degrees, usually even less. 70 it'll go down to 65 and be kind of twilight. That's like perfect. So, so nice. So bring yeah. like eye blinders of some sort, or like an eye mask for sleeping. Yes, bring an eye mask so that you can sleep. Or if, just don't. Or not it's only sleep. four days. That's true. You guys can just have an absolute bath for four days straight. Just bring a lot of water. Bring a lot of water. Bring... Is there a water source? That's the thing. So this is a pack it out packet pack it in pack it out event it's zero waste so bring everything that you need for the event bring your own water bring your own food and don't you bring like a bunch of single-use plastics yes don't bring single-use plastics please for you and everything else yeah a couple alcohol establishments that i'm going to have breweries whatever that's all still in the works as well they're going to be using reusable cups nice. or bring your own cup cool. ideally bring your own cup from your camp Right. Yeah. yeah, you're going to have a cup anyway, so yeah. just bring it. Make sure you pick up all your own garbage. The land is fairly fragile because it is a hay field, and this lovely family that I am leasing the land from, that is how they make their money. So, you know, they have to harvest this hay, and if the land is damaged or there's a bunch of garbage on it, when they harvest their hay, the garbage will be in the hay barrel, and then they cannot sell it. So that is the main focus, is keeping the land intact, being mindful of what you're doing, respecting the land, don't rip the grass, don't be doing burnouts or anything. It's also, you get parking, so if it's first comes, first serve, if you absolutely have a preference, we can try to work that out, but when you're parked, you're parked. So you're not gonna be moving around a whole lot, and that's not because we don't want you to move around, it's just because your tires are going to do damage to the grass. All that aside, it is going to be an absolutely incredible time. There's going to be so many people from all over, locals, people from America, overlanders also come to Alaska, people that travel the world in their vehicles, and those people are absolutely a joy to talk to. And are they, are there, is that community coming? Like, is there... Well, part of the plan with Vanstock is social media is amazing and I think it's a great tool, but I also think it's so important to also do the physical legwork. So I there will be posters all over the state for Vanstock. People will be personally invited. There will also be little flyers that people that we see, me and my friends and my crew, are going to invite people that have cool rigs or that are obviously not from there, putting it in their windshield, seeing if they come. 
So getting the word out there physically is also a huge part of it as well. That's how I've run my business this whole time. It hasn't been social media based. It's been old school paper, which I think is charming. It's a good reason to go to Alaska. It's a perfect reason. A lot of people have messaged me and said that they've always wanted to go, but they didn't have a reason. I can see Alaska being super intimidating. There's not a whole lot of information on it online, and it's massive, and people are also scared about various things. Yeah, not me, though. (laughs) Grizzlies aren't scary to me. But a lot of people are. Like, that's their fear, is bears and giant wildlife which that is and even just the whole traveling bit like being Mm -hmm. alone in the middle of like driving through um west texas even and there's like no gas station for i don't know 80 miles or something it's like ooh, this is adventurous you know yeah so uh, that whole thing being up in the tundra that's definitely intimidating. It can be intimidating, and that's why I think Van Stock is so important, is to create a community in the north for nomads, as well as travelers that want to be there and interact with locals and understand what it's about and where to go and what to see and enjoy themselves. Part of the process of signing up for the email list on vanstock.org <laughs> You will get updates and little Alcan tips and where to go in Alaska, travel plans, resources, where to get water, where to get food, what to expect on the Alcan land when you get to Alaska. So if you are nervous about those and you want to get personalized tips from me, I'm doing it. It'd be cool (laughs) if you you did like an artistic map of the Alcan, that would be really cool. Yeah, I I want to make it really cool and put as much of the information that I have learned by doing the grunt work for everyone. They can (laughs) easily go and have a great time and that's what I want and I'm really happy for Alaska too of bringing up so many people that wouldn't normally come or are trepidatious about it and boosting Alaska's economy as well. And it's like a business. softly curated Alaska yeah. trip. Yeah, it's it's going to be a really amazing experience, and I'm so excited for everyone to come up and f- find joy at the festival, meet cool friends, and travel with them in the state. And you can all camp in cool spots by the ocean, in the woods, by the mountains, and next to Denali, and have a great time before, during, and after. So quickly, how can we get a hold of you, and if people want to talk about Vanstock or dive into that, where do they go? So my personal Instagram is at Practical Paradise. I'm more than happy to answer anybody's question or interest or if they want more information about Vanstock or even me or what I'm doing. Vanstock's Instagram is Vanstock Alaska. All one word. Mm Mm-hmm. And there I post cool pictures of Alaska, things that you should see, little travel tips, and also updates about the event. And as things happen and I book more things and everything gets finalized, that is where I'm going to be posting it. There's also vanstock.org, which has an email list, and that's where I will be sending the really detailed tips for the Alcan, travel tips for Alaska, resources, everything like that. Excellent. And Baron will put links to yeah, all Yeah, I'll that. have it all in the show notes. Yes. So normal, the number two, nomad.com slash podcast, and then <laughs> it'll all be there. Yes. There's um, also a Facebook for Vanstock, just... I think it's just Banstock, and then there's a Facebook event. If you guys are Facebook people, awesome. 
And if you have trouble finding any of it, reach out to Elsa, Elsa or I if you can't find Lindsay for some reason. And we will hook you up with the deeds. Thanks, Lindsay. Yeah, we you're awesome. We love you so much. Oh, thank you. I love you guys. Lindsay's just the coolest person. Like, over and over again, she keeps hauling out the coolest things out of her band. A didgeridoo, a tank drum, blueberries this morning, this floral honey from... Best guacamole we've ever had. Yeah. Kombucha. Kombucha that she brewed in her van. Sprouts that she grew in yeah. her van. Yeah. She's amazing. She's Don't like follow her. She's like Mary Poppins of <laughs> Except for like more joyful. So. Oh my god. <laughs> anyway, we gotta crack this scamp open. It's out in here. And we'll talk to you guys soon. Love you, bye. Bye. <laughs>